It is so good to see each and every one of you. I know the, the, uh, many of the parents are praising Jesus that school has started. It's not that we don't love you children, we do, um, but uh, we also like our time. And, uh, and so, um, no, hopefully you guys have had a great transition. Hopefully your school year has started well. Um, and for both the students and the parents, um, hopefully you guys have been able to kind of navigate as you kind of find those new rhythms that we've been talking about. Going along with rhythms, uh, if you are new, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you walked through our door. I know there's a lot of places that you can choose, but, but God led you here. And so we're so thankful that you guys decided to join us this morning. Um, if you are new, I uh, want to let you know we've been walking through a series called Rhythms of Life these past several weeks. Um, and, uh, and through the course of this, uh, this particular series, we've been talking about, and you'll see it up here on the screen, I want to show you just a, a brief definition. What do we mean by rhythms of life? Rhythms of life are daily patterns, ideas, and practices found in our everyday lives that often determine how we interact and respond to life. They're just the things that we, we constantly do how our morning goes, how we take the kids to school. Um, but more than that, there's things deeper in our life about how we feel about life. There's patterns and ideas about that help craft the way we feel and the way that we think and the decisions that we make. And then, and then literally week three, before last week, two weeks ago, we talked about the things that we do. And then last week, and I wanna, I'm so glad for uh, the youth pastor we have, Randy did a fantastic job. I'm so thankful for him and uh, what he brought to the table. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and the way he delivered God's word, and, I'm, and it is truly to the benefit of all that God's doing here at this church to have someone like Randy to be able to lead your kids and support you as parents um, in the home. And, and so this week, we get to kind of close out our Rhythms of Life series. And, uh, and this morning, if you guys have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Psalm. Psalm chapter 119 is where we're going to be here this morning. And, and as you're turning there, um, let me ask you guys a question. How many of you guys remember uh, when phones used to be, you know, phones with like cords used to be a thing? Do you guys remember that? Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Some of you, and, and you know what you do? What would you do? You would buy the longest cord and then you'd plug it in and then it, it would just be wrapped around the house and, uh, and, and it would just get all bunched up sometimes. And, and, uh, and then you'd have, you, you know who was on the phone because you could see the cord going into the room of where the phone was. And, and, uh, and then you, there would be only one phone. And so everyone's banging to, and, and my brothers and I, if you, guys, uh, if you guys were similar, we would fight to get to the phone when it would run, ring. You know, um, and, and some of your kids are like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. Like, I don't, I would dial, I don't, spin, okay, all right, this is analog. I, I have no idea what, what you're talking about. But, but here's the thing. I, at one point, I, I mean, we, that's just how things used to be. I mean, phones, that's, that's, that was phones. Until one day, until one day, my, I, I got to get in the truck with my uncle and all of a sudden, I looked to, I, looked, I was sitting in the passenger seat, and I looked to the left in between, and there was this big box. You know what I'm, ta you know what I'm about to say. There's this big box, and connected to this big box, you know what, what? Was a phone. And I went, that'll never catch on. So what I said. I was like, oh, that's a fad. That'll be here and go. But I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I thought, I thought it was like going to space. I was like, this is a phone in the car. This is incredible, you know? And I mean, for, again, for the longest time, I was like, 
This is the way we do communication. Phones on the wall, we dial it or we push the buttons and that's it. And, and then all of a sudden I'm introduced to this new space age technology of a phone being in a car and it was attached to this huge box and he even let me make a phone call and it was like 90 bucks a minute so I, I could only talk for like 30 seconds, you know. But it was just so awesome. It was just so incredible to see that and, and how things change. So here's, here's what I know. And here's what many of you know. Um, life has the ability to change rather quickly, sometimes. Sometimes it shifts, sometimes it, it, it changes, maybe alters just a little bit, but sometimes it's this huge, drastic change. Listen, you can't watch a, a commercial today without, what, seeing the words like new, improved. You know, it's no longer just tied. It's like tied on steroids. You know, it's, it's, no longer, it's no longer just, you know, buying one type of product that's like, that's that product, but this, and even though it's the original formula, I mean, we know that. We know it's the same Crest formula. It's the no, same Colgate formula, but they, they add all, these lang- all this language and, and that kind of, but it's, but it's always new, always improved. It's always shifting and changing. But now we live in a world where it seems like relativism, where everything's relative, is king. Where we live in a postmodern society where um, that's how we uh, discover truth. And what do I mean by postmodern? I mean uh, our truth is established by our experiences. So I walk through something that day and so all of a sudden my truth is, is, is basically how that day sort of played out. What my experience offered me. How did I feel? But we also live in a world now where it seems like things have shifted even more, like changes happening at a, at a, at a greater level, where, where no longer is, is uh, like black is now white, and, and white is now black, and, and, uh, and all of a sudden we have up is now down, and down is now up, and, and then we have right now being wrong, and wrong now being right. And we even take it as far as, as the, the whole gender issue where gender is no longer male and female. It's now non-binary, where, where we don't even where we don't identify as male or female. It's all relative. And I, and, I, and I took a step back, especially as I was praying about this and, and looking where God wanted to go in this final time together in this series. And I'm like, is there anything concrete, God? I mean, it feels like every day, Every day there's something new that's being tossed in the air. Every day uh, new semantics, new words are coming out, new language, and, and everything seems to be shifting and changing. Like there, there's nothing concrete. It's like we're, we're building houses on shifting sands. And so what's real in this world, right? I mean, that's, that's where it leads us to. Like what is, what is real? Is there anything in this world that doesn't change? Is there anything that is concrete? Is there anything that always is yesterday and today? Is there anything absolute? And that's where I believe God wants to bring it this morning. I believe in this last final uh, concluding uh, message on rhythms of life, I believe God wants, us to, sh- wants to show us a couple of things that never change in this life. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, to me, to th- that, even that thought is a breath of fresh air. Even that thought gives me hope and confidence to know that, that no matter what this world offers, 
No matter what new and improved things happen, no matter how this world seems to flip upside down and the chaos that seems to kind of go all around us, is there, is there something that seems to remain the same no matter what? Is there anything absolute? And, and not just absolute, is there such thing as absolute truth? Absolute truth. This morning, I want to challenge not just your hearts this morning. I want to challenge your heads a little bit this morning. Because I think it's important in a world that is constantly changing. Many of you are students at college. Many of you are students at, at maybe high school or elementary or what, whatever. Um, and then you, us as adults, l- let's be honest, we are, we are being introduced to all kinds of ideologies and philosophies that challenge everything about our belief systems. Everything. And God is truly putting it on us to really know and know exactly how to stand in a day such as this. And I believe God helps us in where he brings us this morning. So let me, let me, uh, let me start out by saying, what is absolute? What do I mean by absolute? Absolute truth. Um, absolutes, and, and there's a couple things on here that I want to show you. What do we mean by absolute truth? It means that absolute truth never changes. Absolutes meaning it never changes, no matter what. Like, uh, uh, no matter how much, uh, what happens in this world, it always remains the same. Absolute truth also means it's immovable. Meaning, no matter how much I want it to move, no matter how much I want it to change, no matter how much I desire something else, it always is. What else about absolutes? It means that, that it is unaffected by time, and this is important, it's unaffected by time, feelings, I'm touched, I know I'm getting on some toes right now, or people. Why is it unaffected by time, feelings, or people? You know why? Is because us as people, we're not absolute. We are temporary. We are flawed. We are constantly changing, constantly morphing, constantly. So guess what? We can't be the source of absolute, let alone absolute truth. Okay, what else is it? We also have, it, is, it means that it's people, culture, or news. People, culture, or news, be it NBC, ABC, it doesn't matter, does not dictate it. It does not create it or establish it. Meaning, our outside thoughts about the world our opinions about the world, the ongoings in the world, neither create it, dictate it, or establish it. There's, it just, it doesn't. You know why? Because everything about us and all those things that are people related are flawed and they're broken. They cannot create absolute truth, no matter how much they want to. It also means that man's finite attempts are inadequate because they won't last. They're not going to last. They will eventually fade away. I am finite, meaning I'm temporary. I am here for the next whatever. God will have me living until 80, 90 years old, whatever, whatever it is. But I'm here for a short time, including, including my ideas, including the things that I say. They will fade away. People will forget. It won't matter. It will fade away. It is not concrete, no matter how much I want it to be. And so that means 
and will always be established outside of ourselves. Absolutes have to be established outside of ourselves. So, so that leads us to this question. What is the only thing or the only person that lies outside of you and me, of us? It's God alone. God alone. God alone is the only one that lies outside of this. Now, now I want, I want you to follow with me here, okay? What qualifies God? Why God, right? But, but why does he get to establish it? Why can't I say this is right? Well, we already, I've already said that we're temporary. But why God? Well, let's just look at whether you believe in God this morning or not, or you're watching online. Uh, let's talk about God. What are the qualifications, the necessary qualifications and characteristics of God? Let's just look at it just real briefly. Just, let's look at it just almost logically in some, in some regard. God doesn't change. You can't be God if you change. So uh, let's just start right there. There's nothing that changes about God. I think many of us, all of us would agree that's part of the definition of God. What, and, and actually in Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, it says, I am the Lord, I do not change. Okay? So, so God does not change. The pure definition of God does not change. What else? God is also eternal. Eternal meaning, meaning um, uh, in, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, it says, I am Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. And, and so understand that I am timeless. I'm, I'm constant. I am the constant when there are no other constants. I am I'm eternal. This is, this is part of who God is. The other thing, um, aside from being eternal, is God knows all things, right? See, he couldn't be God if he doesn't know all things. If, if I came up to God and said, hey, God, I want to tell you something, and then he goes, wow, I didn't know that, then he would not be God. Does that make sense? Like, like, we can't surprise God. Let me give you some information about something about the known universe. There's, you could not be God if you did not have the characteristic of knowing all things. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, it says, Have you not known, have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth? He never grows weak or weary. No one, here it is, can measure the depths of his understanding. You know why? Because we don't have a mind like God. We, don't, we, we are not a, a creation like God. God is not, uh, God is the beginning and the end. No, nothing created God. What's the fourth and final that defini- uh, added to the definition? God is not limited by space, time, or power. Like he, he's all powerful. Like there's nothing he can't do. So why is this important? Okay, if we're talking about truth, something that never changes, we know that, 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 there, that, there, that there are. And, and if there is, then who has to establish it? Well, it has to be by God. And God has all these characteristics. And so let me say this. If there is someone or something that you are worshiping here, even this morning, that all these characteristics and then some don't, they don't have, then that God is not worthy of your worship. That God is not worthy of your worship. He's not worthy of your glory. You should not give him your affection. You should not give him your time. You should not give him your faith or your trust. But if there is, there is a God. And he's capable of establishing 
this absolute truth. Let me ask you this question. Would it be worth, and I think it would be, wouldn't it be worth um, knowing what this absolute God who established this absolute truth is? Wouldn't it be worth knowing what he said? Would it, wouldn't it be of eternal significance to you and to me to know what this God said? Because if there's nothing else concrete except what God has done and what he has said, then, then that would be important for me. I, I'd want to know that. I want to know how to navigate everything because he's the only one that can make that established, unchanging, unmoved, timeless, uh, established truth. And I, that's exactly what I want. And that's what God is. So, here's the question. How did this God who has eternal significance to all life and my future, make his truth known. And this is where I want to be this morning. Psalm 119, verse 105. This is what it says this morning. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path. One verse. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet, and a light for my path. Heavenly Father, would you just be with us this morning? Give us wisdom beyond our years of experience. We bring you glory, and we ask that you would visit us. Speak to both of our, our hearts and our minds this morning, that we may know you and love you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know what this verse tells me? I I, you're like, Joel, one verse? Yeah, one verse. One verse. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, to guide my feet, and a light unto my path. So what does this verse tell you and me? This, this verse tells me that, guess what? We start out in the dark, from birth. Meaning, that he wouldn't suggest a light for your life if you weren't starting out in the dark. There would be no need, because everything would be illuminated, right? If everything was lit up and you could see clearly, then a light would not be necessary. But God said, um, no, uh, your word is a lamp unto your, uh, to guide your feet and a light unto your path. And so you and I have to understand that we don't have the capability we don't have the, the, no matter how much we want to will it, we don't have the capability of producing a light in our own life. I don't have the ability to produce light in another person's life. Now this is so important, especially as we're talking about how to walk faithfully in a world that seems really dark. And the world would love to offer its form of light. So, so what this verse also tells you and tells me is that there's no substitute either. Like there's not an alternative. God doesn't say your feelings is a lamp to guide those feet. I'd love, you know what? There's a lot of people that would love for it to say that. He, he doesn't have this open-ended, your feelings, your newscast, your YouTube channel is a lamp to guide your feet. Your TikTok, your, your social media feeds, your, your news feeds. It, he doesn't say that. He says your word, this absolute God who is absolute over all and timeless and is all powerful, he establishes truth and he delivers it into 
something we know as the word of God. He says, my word, my word, that, that's your absolute. That's the, that's the lamp to guide this, your next step. That's what, that's what it shows you. And then, uh, guess what, and, and then that next step. And not just these, each of your next step, but also when you look down that long, long road of life, it's a whole lit path all the way down. And you know what doesn't light that path? You. You know what doesn't light that path? Your, your feelings, because those change all the time. You know what doesn't light that path? Your, your neighbors or your friends. You know what doesn't light that path? What culture says is okay. You know what doesn't like that path um, is, is the, the news or the government. Doesn't, they don't establish that either. Do you understand? Nothing lights that path, but the light source that is spoken by the absolute God who established absolute truth, and he says it is found in one place, right here, in my word. See, the light tells me several things, and it should tell you several things. As I began to think and look at this, there's no substitute. Nothing else in all of existence is sufficient to guide my every step and down, down my path. So what this tells me is this light tells me where to walk. Tells me when to walk. It tells me how to walk. But then, maybe even most importantly, tells me why I walk. That's what this book tells me. Tells me every, every time I open its pages, every time I, 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 I read the word, you, it's, it, what's funny is, is we, we like to think that, that this is some sort of just a simple historical document, but it's not. It is alive and it's breathing and it's active and it has absolute truth that has eternal significance for every single person here, every single person online, in these doors, outside of these doors, from the past to the present or, or to the future. Uh, however many years God has this earth in existence, it's timeless. It is truth. It doesn't change, meaning if I leave it for a thousand years and I come back, guess what? It's still true. If I, if I walk away from it and then I come back the next day, it's still true. Nothing moves it. Nothing shakes it. Because be careful if you're actually believing or looking to lights that might lead you down a wrong path. So I've, I've had the opportunity when we were growing up, we traveled around a lot. And uh, uh, again, being in the military, you just, you just do that. Well, one of the places that we stopped was the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon, yes? I mean, we're not too far. How many people are going to Grand Canyon? Yeah? Okay, well, a lot of you guys. Um, I encourage you, if you haven't gone, it's, it's spectacular. It's amazing. It's magnificent. It truly is one of the wonders of the world. I, I mean, you just get there and you're just like, this is, this is unbelievable. And I remember we were very young, my twin brother and I, my brothers, and we were traveling across country going to one of our other duty stations. And and mom said, hey, let's go, let's go to the Grand Canyon. We'll stay there two days. And so we were all excited. And so we get there. And, and all of a sudden, we stand and we just look. And in this one area, and you might know it, it's close to, I guess, the, the, there's a close visitor center or something like that. There's, there's kind of a railed area um, where you can go and kind of stand and look over this beautiful landscape. And so, so my family and I, we went over there. And all of a sudden, my two older brothers... You might have older brothers or older sisters like this. Um, see, your older brothers like to get you to do things that 
they want to see happen, but they don't want to do themselves. So my brothers took on the, the, this, um, the job of becoming a new source of light for Nathan and I a lot of the time. And, and so my, my brother, David and Andrew, they came up and they said, hey, Nathan and Joel, listen, we've got a great idea. If your brother or sister says that, that's probably not going to go well for you. I'm just, let's just, this is a blanket statement, okay? Um, so my, my twin brother and I were like, oh, okay, yeah, what's going on, you know? And, and they're like, listen, it's really beautiful, isn't it? We're like, yeah, this is great. Hey, you would get a better view on the other side of the rail. And Nathan and I went, that's a great idea. We're like, fantastic. Yes, that's got to be true. So Nathan and I just, hey, let's go. Let's just walk over here. And so Nathan and I, these two little blonde-haired boys, start scaling the outside of the rail. Quickly, the, uh, the park ranger gets on his little bullhorn and he says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have two blonde-haired little boys. Um, if they belong to you, can you retrieve them quickly and safely? Well, all of a sudden, my mom turns around, dear Jesus, you know, and literally just kind of beelines it. Dad comes rushing over, grabs us by our face, and his military Marine Corps arms pulls us over. Uh, a trip that we were supposed to be there for two days lasted about an hour, and we left. Because my mom goes, my nerves can't handle it, you know? And that's, that's what my mom said. And, and so, I, I, why do I say that? I say that because, you know what? As good of an idea, my brother's thoughts were and, and, and how, how convincing they sounded. You know what? It wasn't, it wasn't the kind of truth, the, the light that we really needed in our life. Because when you don't have the right kind of truth, the right kind of light speaking into your life, man, one step could go really bad and it could actually mean your life. But I want to look at the Word of God here real quick. This is, I, I mentioned I want, to, I want to challenge your head here a little bit. So I want you to follow with me just for a little bit. Because I want you to look at the Word of God just for a second as not just the, the Bible. I want you to look at it as an actual historical document. One of the things you'll, you'll know about me is I love apologetics. and I won't, Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to defend. I love to know how to defend my faith. And so that's led me to be something of an evidentialist. And an evidentialist basically says, what's the evidence to help reinforce the things I believe? Why is the Bible, whether you think it's theologically true, whether you like its content or not, just as a historical document, is this a valid source of truth even in our world? And I thought that would be a That'd be really fascinating to know. So God had led me down paths of where it began. He began to reveal those things to me. Now, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, how do we know the Civil War happened? The Civil War, uh, not because, and the reason why I say that is because none of you were eyewitnesses of it. None of you were. Doesn't matter. Uh, n- none of you were there. None of you uh, snapped uh, JPEG photos or anything like that. No, 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 no we, we don't have that. So how do we know that Something as, something as, you know, recent as the Civil War, at least in time's sake, um, how do we know that that event actually occurred? We weren't there. Well, 
if I told you um, that I could bring you to a, a battlefield, and we began to look in that battlefield, and all of a sudden, you know what we began to discover? We began to st- discover some archaeological finds, like some old bullets. And all of a sudden, you see this old cannon that was there. All of a sudden, you know what happens? That becomes evidence to help support an event or events that took place in the past. Now, how about if I do better than that? How about if I showed you uniforms that were worn on both sides of the war? All of a sudden, it's not some fabricated story that I come up with. All of a sudden, it begins to take root into something a little bit more concrete. Or how about if I give you a journal of an eyewitness account while the battle's going on with blood stains in this journal and he's pinning an actual, an actual part of the battle and just kind of going, giving detail of the things that were going on. All of a sudden, you begin to have this mound of evidence that helps support this event or these documents that took place in the past. Well, the same thing applies to the Word of God. We have evidence, because here's what our world likes to say. If you believe in the Bible, you're an idiot. If you believe in the Bible, hey, kids, if you, if you trust in the Bible, you're, you're a moron. I mean, that's literally, this is what the world, this is what, this is what a lot of times teachers uh, tell us and try to convince you. But can I just say this, and, I'm gonna say, and I would challenge anybody to this, and I'm going I'm to make a statement and, and, and I, I, again, I welcome the conversations that come from it. The Word of God, without, without fail, is the most well-founded, well-grounded, factually responsible, first-century historical document in history. Hands down. Hands down. And that's just not me. That's... That's from Christian scholars, secular scholars, all the way. There is so much evidence to help support it that you can't walk away uh, looking at it going, wow, uh, did it happen? Did it not happen? And you can go back and forth. No, no. Uh, And let me give you just a couple things. I've got a a list here of a couple things that I just want to give you just to help us Help us understand why the Word of God, even just from a historical document, is sound and grounded. Okay, Historical documentation, like I already mentioned, uh, consists of um, eyewitness accounts, enemies. I mean, if enemies start talking about events that took place, um, multiple accounts from multiple perspectives, archaeological finds, all these different things help to become historical documentation. Now, there's litmus tests that determine whether or not a historical event took place or some sort of, or this Bible is actually a sound document. Let me give you a little bit of tools here. Dead Sea Scrolls, 1947, a young shepherd was walking close to Qumran, which is close to the Dead Sea, and he discovers over 900 texts in Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, and these texts consist of the Word of God. And here's what's fascinating, 1947, these documents that are hundreds of years old, when you, they compared, especially the full documents of like Daniel and Isaiah that they found, and they compared them to our modern day Isaiah and Daniel, you know what you find? An identical match. 
Meaning, when it was first penned then, it's the same Daniel that we're reading now. It's the same Isaiah that we're reading now. So please understand, I mean, it's like playing telephone. You know how when you play telephone with the kids, all of a sudden it goes around and it doesn't come back quite the same way? All right? Um, A lot of the time that happens historically, especially when you're transferring information. But when you look at the Word of God, it was perfectly preserved. God literally protected it. I mean, and over 900 texts. But then, let me, let me give you a little bit more perspective, okay? The second closest, um, some scriptural statistics, the second closest historical document in history, you know what, was written by a man named Homer, and we know it as the Odyssey, the Iliad, okay? Now, the Iliad had 643 known copies um, in circulation, transcripts. So out of those 643, that's how we were able to get the Odyssey, Okay? And you're like, wow, that's a lot of documentation. It is second, though. It is second only to the Word of God. Because when you compare it to the Word of God, the Word of God has over close to, give or take, 100,000 copies. So there's 642. It's the second closest historical document in history in comparison to over 100,000 documents sort of seems not fair, okay? Well, let's get a little bit more not fair, okay? Because when you look at the Odyssey, uh, historians look for what are called variations. You look for variations. Now, variations are differences that you see from one document to the next. So one document might have periods or commas, and the next one might not. And so you look for these variations, capital, you know, things that are capital in one, or different people, places, times, all those kinds of things. They look for variations from document to document. Now, in the New Testament variations, between the 100,000 copies that we have, there are over 10 to 15,000 variations that are found. And you're like, wow, Joel, that's, that's a lot, though. Seems to be a lot. Well, when you compare that to the 643 copies of the Odyssey, they have 2.1 million variations in it. So all of a sudden, you've got a document that has less copies with significantly more variations. And when I talk about these variations, the variations differ not just in like, you know, capital letters and commas. No, there's different times, places, spaces, settings. And so what I'm telling you is that the Odyssey that you're reading today actually might not be the original pinned odyssey that homer pinned uh, hundreds of years ago okay so we might not even be sure that that odyssey that we're reading today is the actual document that was read now when we look at the new testament the 10 to 15,000, there's not a scholar today secular or christian hear me that would say that the that it's abs- touched the purity of the word which means this what was pinned over a thousand, uh, almost 2,000 years ago, and all these documents, is the same, is the same document, is the same word of God then as it is today. See, God preserves his word. He always has. He always will. He always, it, it, this is the absolute God that preserves what he, writ, wrote, you know, what he had written then is the same thing that we're reading right now. It's unchanged. It's unmoved. It's established across historical guidelines and boundaries in every possible way. This should encourage you as believers 
This should, students, this should encourage you. And so when your teacher goes, you're an idiot if you believe, if you believe in, the, in the Bible and, and you can look at them genuinely, and I don't want you to get in a fight or anything like that, but, but you know, look at them genuinely and go, okay, I want you to show me a document that's more well-grounded and founded than the word of God as the best historical document in all of history, go. Because there's not. Because if you do, if you say, well, I don't like the Bible, Joel. I just want to get rid of it. Okay, let's play that game for a second. If you get rid of this document being the most well-grounded historical document in history, then that means you have to get rid of every classical work and every historical event that happened in history because there's no other historical event or document in history that is as well-grounded as this. So if you get rid of this, you got to get rid of everything else and then we have no history. That's how well-grounded and founded the Word of God is. It's fantastic. And so I want, and, and what this should do, this should give you confidence that when I'm reading this, that this is what God originally penned for you and for me. Now, why, why is the Word of God essential? And I just want to give you just a couple things as we're kind of, kind of closing out. I, I, get, I, wanted, I wanted to give you some things. I wanted you to give you some tools to help you understand that this is our word. But here, let, let, let's end on, on, on a kind of a heart note. The word of God is essential. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 9 through 13. It says, so Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them at the end of every, of every seven years, in the year of canceling debts, during the festival of tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the, the, the people, the men, the women, the children, the foreigners residing in your towns so they can listen Listen to fear the Lord your God and follow, follow carefully all the words of his law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Why do we need this? Yes, it's truth, but why do we need this? According to Deuteronomy 31, you know why? Because we're never gonna see God and fear God if we don't have this book being devoured into us every single day. You're never gonna see him the right way. You're always gonna be guessing, you're always gonna hear culture, you're always gonna hear these dissenting voices. Uh, if you want to know God, if you want to know our Savior, Jesus Christ, it, it starts and ends here. You don't have to go any further than this. And if this, is not here, if this is not here, then guess what? You, you're, you know what? We're gonna have a skewed view of who God is. You're not going to fear him because look, at the end it says, uh, they have to listen and learn to fear the Lord. So if you don't listen and learn from this incredible absolute truth book that God had poured out, then you will not learn to fear God. And if you don't fear God, then, then you have nothing to fear and you're going to continue to live according to what you want rather than he wants because there's nothing superior in your life than you. And so you're gonna walk according to your own light, which will lead you down a dark path, which will end in destruction. And God goes, I don't want that for you. I need to be your lamp. I need to be your light. Unto your feet, I need to be a light, a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. This is what our God is. This is why he gave us this word. And you can believe it. You can trust in it. It's found, it's grounded, and it's essential. 2 Timothy 3.16 
says it, it uh, and, and I love, I love what, what Timothy says here. He says, all scripture, meaning all this, is inspired by God and is useful to teach, teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. Meaning you're not gonna know what's wrong unless you're reading this book. Um, it, it corrects us when we're wrong. It's probably the reason why we don't like to, to read it because none of us like to be corrected, right? Uh, it, it also teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. If this word that's essential is not being found in your life, you're not gonna know how to be corrected. You're not gonna know, uh, oh, I, sh I shouldn't step there, or I should step over here. Uh, you're not gonna know the path in which he has you to walk because you know what, you're not, you're not literally, you're not looking to the light, the, the guide, the lamp that says, okay, you can step here, oh, but don't step there. <laughs> step here, but, oh, but don't step there. This is what this, this does. It, it leads us down the path of righteousness and it invades every part of our existence, every part of your parenting, every part of your family, every part of your job, every part of your thinking, every part of your emotions. It, literally, God looks and governs and equips you to be the man, the woman, the child of God he has you to be when you begin to devour this and dive into this incredibly rich and well-established book. So let's, let's assume for a second, what are the consequences of actually not having the word in our life? Okay, real quick. What are the consequences of not having God's word in our life? I think Amos gives us a clear example of this. When the word of God is not in our life, he says, the time is surely coming, says the sovereign Lord. When I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Kind of feels like that today. People will stagger from sea to sea, wander from border to border, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Beautiful girls, strong men will grow faint in that day, thirsting for the Lord's word. And those who swear by shameful idols of Samaria, who take oaths in the name of God of Dan, make vows in the name of God Beersheba. They will all fall down, never to rise Again, first of all, Psalm 119, verse 105. You know, you know, when we don't have this word in our life, we don't have a light. We walk in darkness. That's, that's a big deal. You will walk in darkness if you don't have this. You just, you will. If this is not in your life, you're gonna begin to walk in darkness. What's the second thing that Amos tells us here? Verse 12 says, people will stagger. They will stagger and they will wander it's almost like, like a blind person but can see. But you will stagger and you wander. And, and you may even know some people, maybe in your own life if you're looking, you feel like you're just wandering around, staggering around, trying to figure out what's right, what's wrong, what do I do, what's, how should I live, all this kind of stuff, and you just begin to wander. And I know too many people like that. I know too many children like that. You know why? Because mom and dad are staggering and wandering around and they don't know how to train or equip their kids. This is happening all the time. What else does it tell us? It tells us that in verse 13, beautiful girls and strong men will grow faint in that day, meaning the best of us, the most beautiful of us, the strongest of us, you're gonna fail if this isn't present. If this isn't present, you're gonna fail. 
No matter how, how much you rely on your skill, your strength, all that kind of stuff, you won't make it without the word in your life. Fourth thing, we will turn to our idols. There will be other things in your life that will become ever more important than God when you begin to walk this path. When the word of God is not being sounded in your heart and sounded in your life, you will walk a different path. I promise. But what are the consequences on the flip side? There's consequences, but they're not always negative consequences. If, if the word of God is found in your life, and you understand how essential it is, if it is, what does that do for us? Psalm 119, starting in verse 1, says this, Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil. They walk only in his path. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Don't give up on me. And then jumping down to verse 11, it says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What are the consequences that we get when this book begins to devour us. Well, the first thing in verse one, you're filled with joy. How many of us can use some joy in our life? I can. I need some joy. And joy is not always based on an emotion. It's based on the promise that I can believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever and be unmoved. I am joyful no matter my circumstances. My circumstances don't dictate my joy. My God does. His truth does, and I can be unmoved. What's the second thing? It establishes integrity. Look at verse, it's, look at verse two, joyful, joyful are people, verse one, joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord, meaning I, I'll be the same person behind closed doors as I am in open forums. Meaning I'm, the integrity of my life will be sound no matter where I go, no matter what I do. I will be unmoved, not because it's my, in my capability or in my own power, but because of who God, is, who God is and has poured into my life. He has made me integral, integral in every possible way. The integrity of my life is sound no matter the storms I come up against. This is what God does when the word is actually grounded in our life. The third thing is this, you know what we do? We begin to desire Christ. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. I love, I love this. There's such, a, there, there's such emotion in this. By the psalmist, he's, he's, he's going, oh, I just, I just desire. I desire my Savior. I desire Christ. See, spiritual hunger is different than physical hunger, meaning when you are physically hungry and you don't eat, guess what? You get more and more hungry. And so the more you eat of physical food, the less hungry you get. Oh, spiritual hunger is much different. Spiritual hunger is, is the more I eat of God's word, the more I devour and let him devour me, the more I want. 
It becomes insatiable. I want Jesus not just for a moment, not just to fix a problem, but every single day of every single point in my life. This is what devours me. This is who I live for. This is who I die for. This is who I walk for. This is my life. And there's no other life that compares and there's no other life that I want because of what Jesus has done in me by his truth alone. This is what God does in my life. And this is what God wants to do in your life. Two, two last things. He leads us away from compromise. Man, I need that. He says, they do not compromise with evil. When this is in us, you're not going to compromise. You're not going to look at the alternatives. You're going to stay straightforward and you're going to be steadfast. The fifth thing is, is in verse 11, I have hidden God's word in my heart that I may not sin against you. It keeps us from sin. It just keeps us from sin. Now, I love this. I love this book. I remember when I was a young kid, I would be in the hallway literally at midnight before I'd go to bed. And I'd just, I'd just read it. And I didn't understand everything it said. But somehow, some way, little pieces of it just began to, to plant in me. It began to, to plant seeds that I didn't even know were there. See, this, this book is not just a historical document, even though we can, we can talk about it like that. This is a live, breathing, living document that truly begins to immerse itself in your life in ways you can't even begin to imagine. And it keeps you away from sin and it holds you steadfast and it keeps you from compromising and it gives you joy and it corrects you and it reproves you and it leads you down the right path and it tells you when to walk and when not to walk. It protects your integrity. This is what the word of God does. But as we close, I want to tell you one thing that's very important. Very important. I don't worship this book. I don't worship it. As much, I, I, I don't worship it. You know why? The word of God is not something I worship. It's the chosen means that leads me to the one that I do worship. See, it's not enough to just have this memorized. This takes me somewhere. And in fact, it takes me to someone. And in John chapter 5, verse 39, as we close, this is what it says. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. And some of us, we just, man, I know the word, and you got a lot of head knowledge, but you know what? You've never let all of that knowledge and truth begin to devour this. See, if your head's not connected to your heart, then you can know about God. You can talk about God. Problem is, is you, you won't actually have a relationship with God. You know why? Because it's not about doing good works and knowing good things. It's about being transformed. And Jesus is the only one that transforms you. He only transforms me. So as I read this, you know what? All of a sudden, he just brings me a little bit closer and a little bit closer. And I get to see him, and I get to know him, and I get to touch him, and he touches me, and I want that. I want that every day, every moment that I have. See, in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, in verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we have seen his glory, glory as, if the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace. See, here it is, and we're done. God exists. God exists. And he created absolute truth for you and for me. And, he, and it is found in the word of God, which points you and me to this God. This leads me to Jesus. So the question is, is not whether or not it's solid, not whether it's factual, it's whether, um, because I think we've established that on some level. The question is, is are you going to believe what this book says about the Son of God who died and gave himself for you so you could have eternal life? Only you can make that decision.